Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. Hello and welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. A couple of reminders before we get started. This hour is your chance to hear from the experts, get answers in real time about data you're seeing within your grow, and share cultivation tips and tricks with other growers in our exciting industry. We thank everyone in advance for not using this time for things like airing policy or industry grievances, or asking about Arroya pricing, though you are always welcome to book a demo with us. And hi, my name is Mandy. I'll be your moderator for today's session. Um, feel free to type any of your questions in the chat um, throughout this entire session. If your question is selected, we'll have you go ahead and unmute yourself and ask away. Anyone who asks their question live today for the first time will get an Arroya hat. Um, this is limited to U.S. residents only and one hat per household. Plus, we're raffling off one of our limited edition Arroya t-shirts. To enter, everyone on today's live broadcast should post your email address in the chat. Gentlemen, it's great to see you both. Seth and Jason, how are you? Good. Yeah, good. How are you, man? How are you today, Mandy? I'm rocking and rolling. I'm getting excited because I'm about to go on tour for Arroya. I'm going to the East Coast. So, yeah, it's my first time. Super psyched. Should be how fun. Was, yeah. How was y'all's week? Busy. Yeah. Yep. Been, doing, been doing your thing. Helping growers all over the country, I'm sure. Yep. Trying to you know <laughs> get over this uh, real late Northwest spring going on. I think it's finally warmed up here. So that's pretty cool. What is warm like for you guys? 70 plus. Yeah. Wow. When it, up here, when it cracks 60, everyone's in shorts and sandals. Yeah, I love that. Oh, man, it's so different from Texas. Anyway, <laughs> um, we have a lot of questions that came in through Instagram this week. Are you guys ready to go ahead and dive into some of those? Sure. Sure. Cool, cool. And just a reminder for anyone uh, on the call today, just go ahead and ask your questions in the chat, and we'll go ahead and get to those, too. Um, awesome. So we're just going to go ahead and write down our list. Um, so our friend at Kelp Cutter wants to know, during week five, my Hugos are drying back overnight from 35% to 20% and are slightly hydrophobic. The EC spikes from 8 to 30 consistently. I'm feeding three EC vegetative to 20% runoff. Is this a normal EC reading, and how should I adjust moving forward? So let's kind of just start from the beginning there. I, to me... Uh, it sounds like you're running in just Hugo's and you might be running out of substrate volume. Uh, my guess is if you're only getting up to 35% that those blocks have dried back, um, you know, past that, that point of no return as far as hydrophobic properties occur in the rock wool. Something like a Hugo, we should be seeing 60 to 70% uh, water content and field capacity. And so that's, that's one of the things that you're encountering. One is possibly too small a substrate and, or, um, those properties of that uh, substrate as far as rock wool saturation uh, have been jeopardized by too low water content um, historically. So, and that's what you're seeing. We're, we're topping our graphs off at that 30 decisiemens. Uh, a lot of times you'll see it flat top bounce between 30 and zero. Really what's going on there is it, it's so dry and or salty that, that our sensor isn't doing a great job reading it. Um, 30's probably way higher than we ever should be uh, anyways, and so uh, do keep that in mind. It's probably just a side effect of, of real low water content in there. The uh, side effects of this as well as far as your steering, going to be a little tricky to stay generative just simply because you don't have enough uh, holding capacity in that substrate to run a short irrigation event and a long, long dryback. Uh, you're going to have to give it a few maintenance shots so that you don't uh, run into 0% you know, or 5% water content in there. Yeah, I mean, this is a super common problem, uh, especially in Rockwell. And part of what really discourages people, because a lot of times that might have happened, you know, less than two weeks in. A big thing I run into is a lot of growers when trying to run generative, you know, an early flower, you have to increase your irrigation volume to keep up with the plant growth. So one big dryback event, you know, like let's say the plant grew a lot in the last two days, we did not increase that volume. And then suddenly we had one night where the next morning we were down at 20%. Well, at that point, we probably knocked our field capacity down from 65 to maybe somewhere down by 50, even lower, depending on how far that really dried back. And then once you're there, you don't, you just don't have the gas tank to steer the vehicle, essentially. We, we don't have the holding volume. So depending on how big your plan is, I mean, you, you could very well be out of substrate size. Um, could have just had that one unfortunate event early on. I mean, 
my advice would be if you don't have a Roy or some kind of monitoring system, you need to get that immediately. Um, if you already do, set your targets and alerts to really, you know, help you avoid running into that. And then also make sure, you know, when you soak your rock wool initially that you are in fact achieving that 60 to 70 and even sometimes above 70% water capacity, you know, um, when you plant into an un, not a fully saturated block, we're kind of locking in that field capacity there. Once the roots start to fill out the block, we're not going to really be able to doctor it back up. Great. Thank you guys for that. Um, we did get a question that came in through the chats. Um, Brian, do you want to take yourself off mute and uh, ask away? There we go. In previous episodes, I think I heard you mention that at a feed rate of 3 EC, you wanted to see somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 parts per million of N. Um, if that's not accurate, uh, could you tell me what level of N you would like to see at a feed rate of 3? Um, I'd have to look back and see if that's totally accurate. I uh, Typically, you'd probably be a little higher than 150 ppm at okay. a 3.0 feed. Uh, really, the key for dialing that nitrogen content, though, is to really just get a tissue analysis and see what your plants are doing and then kind of look at whether you've got higher nitrate levels, you know, in your actual feed. Nitrate's a lot more plant mobile, so that's going to be uptaken a lot easier. Um, one of the big things is being able to back off that nitrate level a little later for certain plants. So it's really a plant by plant basis we're looking at on this one. So in our case, uh, we have one dositron manifold and currently have to have a single feed for the whole cultivation facility. Mm -hmm. um, so I can't back off per age bracket or for, for any various phase. Um, we do test our feed and our leachate um, mm -hmm. through waypoint analytical and get analysis. Uh, and we have seen um, nitrogen in particular. And really at three EC feed, uh, we do see almost all of our elements uh, at a higher level in the leachate um, mm. than we do in the feed. Um, but nitrogen seemed excessive, particularly the uh, ammonium side of our nitrate, of our nitrogen, um, which mm. we, we were using uh, ammonium phosphate and uh, uh, we got rid of that because our ammonium levels seemed too high and we went with uh, potassium phosphate. Mm. Um, in order to reduce, but I can't currently reduce my nitrogen at all because I'm using calcium, magnesium, and mm. potassium nitrate. And I need those other components. Do you have a recommendation for a nitrogen source uh, that is not those three? Honestly, in your situation, I would probably keep rocking what you are and try to look for a different solution genetically. Okay. When you have a, 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 all of our genetics, of which we have maybe 25 varieties, um, experience some of the you know, super dark leaves, a bit of mm -hmm. that claw effect of the curl at the end. Um, even with, you know, uh, five, eight pH runoff, five, eight pH feed, mm -hmm. you know, and, and plenty of, uh, our runoff percentages, we try and shoot for around 50% to keep everything just super, uh, I know you don't like the term flushed, but to keep everything at, at the rate that we're feeding it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, our, our outputs roughly equal our inputs for the most part, unless the plant gets out of, gets away from us for a day or two. Um, so, uh, I, I just, I feel like we have high nitrogen levels, but, um, uh, if, if you don't, our nitrogen levels, for instance, are about 350. Mm. Yeah, that's not, that's not super high okay. uh, across the board, but being able to pull it back is nice. And one thing to remember too, is like ammonium is uh, much less plant mobile than say calcium nitrate. Okay. The plant can actually take up calcium or well, the nitrate that's present in calcium nitrate much easier than it can ammonia. Okay. So that can be a driving factor later in, well, not later in flower, but later in bulking when you don't want that nitrogen push and you want to start ripening. Um, as you far as pulling, oh, go ahead. You go ahead. I was gonna say, as far as pulling back from it goes, sometimes that involves looking at a different nutrient line, you know? We're mixing um, salts, you know, and totally. it's not a line, it's just, uh, you know, all the base salts. Oh, okay. We can, we can change gears, we can change recipe on cool. a dime if we need to. Um, I'm just looking, I haven't done any research yet as okay. I find, um, uh, another nitrogen source that is, uh, appropriate. You know, I was recommending mm -hmm. the calcium, magnesium, and potassium so that we could get the other elements out of that. But I, I thought, and I, maybe I just misheard that, uh, 
I don't know if it was just episode 25 last week or, or the week prior or something, but mm. I listened to all 25 of them in, in a three or four week span here. So cool. all, well, thanks, man. Appreciate so it. it for me. Um, but uh, you mentioned high nitrogen acting as a plant auxin and causing cell elongation. Mm -hmm. What level is nitrogen so high that that happens? That would be a really difficult, I'd have to like actually do some research to establish that honestly with every okay. strain, but hitting 350, one thing you can definitely consider is backing off the calcium nitrate a little bit Okay. in general and maybe supplementing with uh, calcium silicate to keep your calcium up. But you know, some of it might be when we, when we've got a plant that's like, it's not just nitrogen at that point, you might even be able to back off, you know, your root zone EC, your feed EC a little bit. So as a general matter, I am having some trouble getting an inverse relationship between EC and water content at any, at any point. We just recently have sort of gotten it on the longer dry back at the end of the irrigation mm -hmm. as the day goes on. We, we do get a bit of an inverse relationship eventually. But typically, as my water content goes up, my EC chases it. It's, it's right underneath of a parallel. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if, you know, as I dry back, initially I get a lowering EC and I'm not hitting in many cases, I mean, it's strain dependent, but I'm not hitting my, mm -hmm. my, um, my feed rate of three. So I'm, I'm down in the, some cases, 1.5 and it, and as it, high with others as, you know, we dry back and, and get an EC of six or seven or eight. Uh, but, uh, what does that mean? I guess, uh, the relationship, if, if my, my EC, my substrate EC is below my feed EC. Yeah, so we're looking at some of those lower ranges like that. Um, if you're not stacked up enough going into flower and stretch kicks in when that plant's going to really start taking up those nutrients, that plant's eating them faster than we can put them in. And that's why I say like across the board, general rule of thumb is on the bottom end of your range, try to hit a 4.0 before you flip. Okay. And for some plants, that's not even enough. Um, but that's generally when it's mirroring that line, that's where you're seeing more water comes in and we actually get more salt throughout that dry back. The plant yeah. just chomping right through it so we're nowhere near for it we're our veg runoffs are so high that we're it's just the same as the feed rate constantly exactly yeah and that's that's where the challenge is in veg really like you know getting away from hand watering and going to a micro drip system and that's what we that's that is what we use um i guess i mean to say we have a large substrate as well uh for veg i think um we're at about we're in a number two nursery pot which we filled up with actual water and got it's 1.5 gallons and then you know after the substrate settles from compaction a little bit which is a perlite cocoa mix that we're using mm -hmm. it really is about 1.3 gallons of actual volume and um not until the, you know we, we only veg for two weeks and we mm -hmm. get 16 17 18 inch tall plants depending on the variety um and by then they're rooted throughout so perhaps we could you know start reducing our, 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 our irrigation window in veg to achieve a, a bigger dryback and a, a higher DC is that I can't change the feed. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And you might also just, um, decrease the amount of runoff that you're getting. Um, when you do that, make sure that you're monitoring your runoff pH so that you can ensure you are still keeping a balanced nutrient composition in that substrate. But if you, if you drop the amount of runoff, it'll also let that EC stack a little quicker. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's where we probably need to be. We're right now, we're just pushing through, pushing it all through, um, for sure. Okay. Um, I think that largely answers that question, but you don't think 350 N is, uh, dangerously high. No, the general I don't think that's outside of a lot of the things we've seen. That's in fact, I mean, you're, you're mixing it per, per the instructions you've got. So, okay. Well, that's the thing. The instructions I got are from a few different sources. Oh, <laughs> if you have the ability, just backing off on the nitrate is going to be a good place to start on that. You know, um, what I actually did is uh, you, you're, you all use Apogee instruments in your light sensors. I understand. Right. So uh, mm -hmm. this formula I got through a colleague from Bruce Bugby out of Utah mm -hmm. and really just, and so the, maybe the next follow-up question was, um, Bruce and my consultant, uh, Dr. Royal Hines, had very similar levels of, of N and, and everything else, really. They mm -hmm. only by about 15% from each other in their estimates of what we should feed cannabis. Um, but they come in around 700 parts per million when you kind of ask them what they would feed. 
Mm-hmm. Is that because our, you know, your or Arroyo's sort of uh, crop steering and irrigation strategies differ in, in in their strategy that you need a higher feed EC, or do you just truly believe that we need triple or quadruple what these gentlemen have kind of told me? Because I was I'm using their ratios, but I've brought mm-hmm. it up to three EC. If that makes sense. Gotcha. Yeah, they had to get it one fifty n, and I and I brought every I just you know tripled everything until I got to three EC. Yeah, we we've definitely seen that we can push these plants with a, a lot higher EC, especially if we've got sufficient light intensity and we're supplementing with CO two. Up in that three range is very reasonable. Uh, sometimes if we're running LEDs or depending on the nutrient plant brand, we'll go um, even higher than that. So it mm-hmm. comes down to how fast we want to bulk our biomass and and the amount of steering that we're using when uh, analyzing those substrate sensors. Yep. And then honestly, identifying certain strains, like it sounds like a lot of your plants uptake nitrogen very easily. They seem you to know, have, especially. according yep. to the classic symptoms, they seem to have yeah. one. <laughs> exactly. I've only done a tissue analysis once and that was on unhealthy plants, to be honest. So right. I don't, yeah. Yeah. I don't have a lot of tissue analysis data. Mm-hmm. Great questions, Brian. Thanks yeah. for piping up. <laughs> sure. Challenging yeah. us. Thanks for bringing the really good crop steering questions, and thanks for uh, being a fan and you know continuing to watch the the show. Um, yeah, uh, if you have any other questions, please let us know. Uh, but we do have some more that came in through the chats. Joel, um, did you want to take yourself off mute and uh, ask so you can give a little bit more context? Or I can totally ask for you, Joel. Um, okay, so Joel wants to know. I'm using Athena newts and growing in a two gallon coke in two gallon cocoa bags and have a question about adding something else to help increase turp profile being laborer involved is not a factor. Um, I hear people adding some sort of organic input to help with that, but wanted to get your thoughts. We love two gallon bags. Um, you know, Athena newts is pretty stable on the market these days. Uh, you know, adding organics, I would try to avoid most any organics. If you have a drip irrigation system, obviously you can go in and do some, some hand feed of organics and keep in mind that in, in Rockwell, there's not a lot of material for those organics to feed and develop off of. So sometimes it's a, a little bit of a wasted, um, energy. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah. I mean, the same goes with cocoa. Honestly, you're buying a sterilized media for a reason and Part of the problem, I mean, there's, there's two problems here, I guess. Like if we're going to go with organics indoors, we're introducing, depending on what it is, the possibility of adding pests to the equation that we didn't have to. That's a big one. And then the other thing we've got to look at with organic inputs is like, what what are you putting in there? If you're putting in some sort of live tea that's a culture that has everything it needs in there to break down those nutrients, cool. But if you're just going to go ahead and put, you know, a compost slurry, and uh, some guano and some other just raw organic inputs, we've got to have the microbiome in that soil to digest that and make it plant available. And, uh, you know, that's kind of why you see like, uh, oh, the whole KNF and JDAM movement with indigenous microorganisms is the term, but basically they're taking a more developed, complete soil in that biome and trying to reproduce that. So when we move that whole operation indoors, the breakover point of, you know, how much effort I'm putting in versus how much I'm getting out really looks bad for us. Like I don't generally promote organics indoors, outdoors, have a good time and just follow the rules. Like Jason said, don't put it through your drip system because you're going to be buying a new drip system pretty soon if you plug it up. And the, you know, the, even IPM, same thing goes like anything that you see that's a wettable powder, nematodes, whatever, just remember your drip system was not designed to handle chunks of anything. So Hand applications are the best for anything other than your nutrient solution. Yeah, just always a good reminder: keep your filters clean. You know, have have a few filters. You know, one after each pump and after each of uh, your injection mixing stations. Have one uh, at the solenoid for for the benches. Keep those things clean. Check them on the daily basis. You know, clean them out every other day if you need to. Great, um, Joel. Did that answer your question? And I see that you did um, add another question here, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, move on down to Omid's. Um, Omid, do you want to take yourself off mute and go ahead and ask our hosts? Or I can definitely ask for you. Okay, so Omid wants to know, I'm curious where, if any, 
the boundary between vegetative and generative cues occurs. To be more specific, is there a set parameter for number of shots that would dictate veg versus gen? Is the hey, number sorry of about that. Oh yeah, no worries. Yeah, you wanna just hop right in? Yeah, so essentially my question is, we're pretty new to crop steering in our facility here. And we're <clears throat> learning about how different types of feeding can cue generative or vegetative growth. Um, I guess my question is, is there some sort of set parameters for where's the boundary between what dictates what's generative and what's vegetative? Like if I'm going for longer drybacks with bigger shots to cue generative uh, growth in the plant, why wouldn't I just do like what we used to do for the last 10 years? You water once when the lights turn on, you water again halfway through the day you have a long dry back in between. Is that not generative cues to the plant? So it's a it's a spectrum, right? On one of the end of the spectrum, we could go as generative as possible and we wouldn't see the best plant growth that we could. Mm. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, completely vegetative. We'd have real tall, maybe lanky plants. And so also keep in mind that irrigation alone isn't the only thing that's cueing the plant for a vegetative or generative um, morphology. So when we think about it, when we talk about vegetative and generative, we're just looking for a desired plant response. And we're trying to pair that with the genetics that we're running as well. You know, and I've talked about this, some plants are already very gen uh, generative leaning. And in that case, we'll run uh, longer sets of, of vegetative and maybe just use a short generative cue to establish reproductive parts on that plant. And so kind of keeping that stuff in mind, um, it is a spectrum. And, and when you ask about number of shots versus dry back between the shots, usually we'll talk about number of shots. Um, and so for you know my basis of, of P1s, uh, so trying to, to do just generative, I like four shots in the course of one hour. I mean, that's kind of just the general baseline that I go with. You know, we could do six shots, uh, but I, I would try probably not less than four uh, unless you have extremely slow drip rates, which yeah that that's my basis for p1 yeah and it, you know a big part of that where that comes in with the multiple shots is limitations of the media we're working in so if we wanted to go as generative as possible like you're saying in the old days say five ten gallon pot got a 10 gallon i'm going to water it once in the morning and i might not even water it tomorrow you know right. i might let it really dry back that's going as generative as we possibly can um however you know like Jason said, four in an hour, that, that 15 minutes gives us time for the water to move around in the media. So like rock wool, for instance, if you've grown on that, you're familiar with the idea that if I put a shot that's too big and that, you know, 10%, 10 to 15% is probably too big. We're going to get some channeling and runoff. It's not going to, you know, saturate the block in the way we want to. Right. So yeah, it, it is all on a spectrum. And then when we talk about genetics, you know, it, our, our classic indicas that are short, that's a generative leaning plant. It's already growing like that, you know, the ones that we probably really want to hit, you know, on the other end, something like the classic diesel strains from the OGs, uh, GMO has been a huge one lately that people seem to uh, be struggling with, with the crop steering GMO. I'll almost never stack it. You know, I'll go generative till week five, six, maybe stack it for, or maybe bulk it up for a week. But like, that's how that plant likes to grow. If I give it too many shots in a day period ever, it's going to start stretching. It's going to throw white pistols. Like we're going to be <laughs> back to not, you know, not finishing the plant the way we want to. Right. And the end application is some of those strains, you know, don't necessarily work in certain cultivation models for profit. Right. So we're, we're in a stasis now where it's like, we've got our crop steering techniques. And now we're getting genetics to catch up just like any other crop where we've got strains and even certain, uh, I'd say substrains almost varieties and cultivars that work better in certain areas and better in certain conditions. And this is where we emphasize using the hardest groups, documenting plant heights, get as much crop registration pictures, notes into each of those harvest groups as you can, because you're establishing, uh, you know, the processes in which this plant is growing. And if you make some changes in those processes, we want to be able to compare it to, to the last run on whether the effects of that, modification to our template is an improvement or or if there's no effect or if it's got a negative impact on our end result. Constantly want P1 to 15 shots over you and 
to delay the weeks and week four and stuff, change your P1 to like more of a P2 shock to make it more generative instead of vegetative. You want to ask? Like halfway through. Sure. Yeah. I don't have a question about it. That, yeah. Here, my, my head grower here has a question also, kind of following up with that. All right, let's hear it. Yeah. Um, if I wanted to, um, let's say uh, we do the P1 15 minutes, uh, 15 minute time difference between each shot. Is that something that I should do the whole way through or should during week three, four, or sometime after the stretch, go back into full generative and not do the 15 minute, more like 30 minute shots or something. 30 minutes in between each shot, sorry. So I was just given that as a basis of a generative P1 irrigation. Um, and so you'll need to you know document how, how long it takes for that specific cultivar to stretch and stop stretching and right. typically we use that as the indicator of when to right. switch from our generative stacking to a, a vegetative bulking type of irrigation system and one one thing to look at it whether we're in uh, generative or vegetative steering p1 is to help us achieve uh you know peak saturation field capacity so again you know if we're like in some some styles people would want to stretch it out to let's say a five or six percent shot every half hour or 45 minutes the main reason that is is because if we tried to put those on every five or ten minutes we would get runoff before we actually hit field capacity right so we we want to uh no matter what reach field capacity with a certain number of shots now some plants we can up that number of shots trying to get it up there and bulking if we want if they're going to respond to more and more shots in the day we can use that time to add more shots but even in bulking, we want to get that P1 done over quickly so we can get our initial dry back and keep hitting it with our small 1% bumps throughout the day. This is the nice thing about uh, modern automated irrigation systems is that you know we can set those those frequencies and volumes pretty easily from uh, from the irrigation systems. And what Seth's talking about and the reason that we would space them, even, even if we are going as generative as possible, space them out a little bit is the, the capillary effect in that substrate my favorite way to visualize is if i have a completely dry kitchen sponge and i put it under the sink and i've got the sink um, you know moderate or high turned up uh, it's going to start draining through the bottom of that kitchen sponge before the edges of the kitchen sponge even become wetted out now if that sink is is just dripping onto the the kitchen sponge then we'll see that entire sponge soak up before it starts dripping out at the bottom yeah, that's a that's a great way to visualize it. I like that. Oh, you're on mute. Okay, cool. I think you answered a lot of our questions. I appreciate that. Great. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thanks for asking that. Um, yeah, we're just going to keep on going down our list because we have so many questions this week. Um, Joel, did you want to take yourself off mute? Uh, your question is up next. Or I can definitely ask for you. All right, Joel wants to know, we're on drippers and we're going to hand feed in something. Is there something that you could add to help increase that? Not sure. We might need a little clarification on um... Is there something you can add to help increase that? Help increase the hand feeding? What are we trying to increase? Yeah, are we not getting enough flow through the drippers to keep up? So you're hand feeding? Yeah, Joel, if you want to add some more context to that question, we can, um, but we can go back to that one. Oh, increasing Annoying. terp for profile. Yeah. Gotcha. So, I mean, no matter what strain we're talking about, we have genetic potential and environmental potential. So what we're looking at is making our environment as best as we can for the plant. Um, when we're talking about specifically upping terps, one thing to look at might be eventually getting a tissue analysis, seeing what we might be lacking. Um, the other thing to look at too is like cannabis, especially with breeding, like we, we've got all these different traits going different ways. Some plants, if we grow them in a drier environment, are going to do better for quality some not so much so really it's about fine-tuning your environment and then making sure you've got a complete nutrient profile there is no like magical i put this chemical on and i get more terps um, another thing that i think people especially in a commercial setting struggle with is hey we're planning all of this on an eight or nine week rotation maybe ten some strains just aren't done at eight or nine weeks 
you know, a big important part of it is getting your loop out. Look at those trichomes, make sure they're smoky colored, amber colored. And remember that all your terpenes and cannabinoids have a biosynthetic pathway. So one molecule is created, it's modified. There's steps to creating everything. If we pull something too early, I mean, that's just a good example of that would be seeing, um, you know, if you'd go get tested and you've got a really high THCA content, but not a very high THC content, that's a good sign. You didn't pull it early and you'll see a correlation between high THCA and a lot of plants that have some lower terps compared to the same plant, like if we left three branches on it and let it go another two weeks. And some of our clients use uh, USB microscopes, a great way to grab a snapshot of what your trichomes are looking like on a specific day. So as you are getting closer to what you suspect is the ideal harvest day, take a, take a snapshot of that strain and log it to your harvest group. Go back next time and... Uh, you should have a pretty good projection on the perfect time to pull that strain down. Uh, granted, no other variables have been modified throughout that cycle. Right. And, the, you know, there, there's still a, a little bit of that classic knowledge with, uh, you know, pulling them later makes the strain feel heavier. Part of that holds true just because of that degradation and biosynthetic pathway over time. Um, that being said, I've personally found if I can let stuff grow a little longer, I will get a better terp expression out of it, especially if it's something that I have been struggling with that with. On the other side, pop a pack of 10 seeds that are all the same F1 cross, and uh, you'll find a range of different terpene expressions in there. So that's also hugely genetically controlled. Like I can pull a bag seed off of some really, really good bud, and depending on what else happened, you know, it might not be that great. The, the same way, uh, if you pull the seed out of an apple and plant it, you're not going to get a red delicious back. Great. Um, Joel, did that answer your question? He says, thanks. I'm so thankful and grateful for all you do. Oh, that's really nice. Um, awesome. We're getting a lot of questions. And so we're just going to keep going. Um, Brian, did you want to go ahead and ask yours? Sure. It's super basic. I, I might've missed it in all the episodes, but do you have a preferred feed rate? Uh, and is it different for different substrates? So my favorite are the, the 0.3 gallon per minute. I think from NetFM, they're actually a 0.29, but we'll call it a 0.3 just because it's, um, you know, when we say gallons, a lot of those are actually liters per um, hour. And, and I think, let's see, is that gallons per minute yep. for the gallons per hour? Gallons per for hour. 0.3 yep. or 0.5. 0.3 yeah, and 0.5 are great. If you're up in your media size to two gallons, you might want to go for a 0.5 or even a 1.0 with a splitter. But part of it depends on how many zones you've got to rotate through and how quickly you need to be putting this water on. You know, when you've got a big facility, let's say you've got 14 zones in a room and a controller and pump that can only run one zone at a time. All right, well, <laughs> we've got some logistics to figure out there and how quickly we need to get through those so we could say, you know, actually execute a bulking feed. But if we have total control and without that limitation, I agree with Jason, I personally like the point threes. The smaller uh, feed you have, the more control you have, the less likely you are to cause, you know, channeling, excessive runoff, any of those issues. Do you have any tips or tricks to help detect whether or not you are channeling versus properly saturating and, and pushing through? Taros 12 in the substrate? Yeah. Uh, well, here's a good one uh, on your graph. If you're seeing, well, there's two things. One, watch your graph. You can look and see when you've applied each feed. Go watch those plants at that feed. If you're supposed to have four feeds in your P1 and you're getting runoff at your third feed, but then you put more on and that continues to go up, that means your and your volumetric water content goes up after that. That means you're just putting it on too fast and it's beating off, basically. I feel you. Yep. We do have a terrace 12 in the substrate. I was I was wondering if anything on the graph might or between the um leachate EC and the substrate EC, if maybe that would be telling yep. or and you and you can sometimes see your EC drop off a little bit at kind of a weird time, like partially through your P1 go down a little bit and you're like, well, why does it go down an extra time there? Like I shouldn't have run off. Right. Okay. Yeah. And Brian, a good practice, uh, that sometimes clients don't catch up with is, uh, take your runoff readings from the same exact substrates that you have your Taros 12s in. So if you, you know, if you've got five Taros 12s in the zone and you're taking five different, um, runoff readings to get a good average of that 
plant population, try and make that the same one. And then you can correlate those runoff readings a little bit more exactly to the, the charts you're seeing. And that's what we have. Our catch pan is under that plant. Perfect. Sure. Thanks, guys. Brian, thanks for that question. Um, we do have um, a little bit of a question from Chirp Turtle Farms. Um, he does want to ask, uh, it's not a direct question, he says, but it, a small discussion about generative stress uh, if we run out of questions. We have a lot of Instagram questions, but uh, Turp Turtle Farms, do you want to go ahead and take yourself off mute and uh, kind of ask about what you were thinking? Hey, how's it going? Hey. Hey, uh, yeah, I, was, I don't know if you remember before, I was running in the Hugos and I ran out of uh, root space like everyone does. And so this time I'm running in the slabs for the first time. We're on day four of flower. Room's dialed, everything's dialed. Meters are reading up to about 64 at, at the end of my P1s. There's zero P2s yet, I'm getting down mm -hmm. to 43 every night. So I'm seeing a nice 20% dry back consistently, you know, go creeping up a little every day. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing for the first time, you know, when you say generative stress, do I want to see a little bit of stress in my plants? Because for the first time, I'm, I'm used to seeing plants that say perfectly green, beautiful all the time. I'm really seeing what appears to be the most minor of magnesium issues, like, you know, a little bit of lightning between my, but it's everything else in the plant looks so good. So when I'm running that generative stress, do I want to see a little stress? Ideally, no. The stress you want to see is that shortened inner node. I, so, I see that too, but I'm yeah. seeing that, you know, that little bit. So then I'm thinking, a little bit too heavy on the dry back. I want to, you know, go a little less. I would look at your root zone EC first and then and make sure it's you're not... it's, it's stacked to five. It's stacked it, to five. Okay. It's stacked to five at full saturation and it, it dries back to about eight, eight and a half. Okay. That's not super high. Yeah. No, just, it's, just so you know, pretty that's, good. Yep. But I mean, it's not, it's not so low that yeah, I would yeah. say for sure you have a deficiency, but most of that would point towards a nutrient deficiency. Yeah, so you think maybe increase EC a little bit, huh? Possibly increase the EC. You know, before I like to play around too much with that, I, I really always say I go back to the tissue analysis and figure out what exactly I'm looking at. Yeah, I don't have any, I don't have access. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah, maybe maybe up your EC a little bit. Um, look at what you're feeding, you know. Because with everything else dialed, I mean, I'm 22 to 25% runoff, 3.0 mm. Athena, like everything looks great. It's just for the first time I'm seeing that little bit of yellowing just – light between and mostly on the bigger fans but no mm. red stems no red petioles just perfect looking plants but i'm seeing this light color that makes me nervous i've never seen before yeah keep an eye on your uh ph area runoff i mean that's the mm -hmm. easiest way to catch a, a nutrient imbalance um you know, 5.9 5. 5. seems seems right every that's why that's why i called in i was like man everything seems pretty pretty dialed in the room stays within 0.2 vpd where i set it like I, mm -hmm. And so I was a little, I thought maybe, oh, I'm just drying back a little too hard, but 20% shouldn't be too hard, right? No, as long as you're staying above, you know, if you call 40 your bottom end so that you yeah. don't dip into that 40. dangerous zone, then you're you're solid, yeah. I think, uh, it, to me, it sounds like a pretty, is it all, all the plants in the room too, or is it just a handful that have this? Okay, so that's the, that's the other thing that's interesting, is it's three zones all in rock wool and on the slabs, and then I have one iron D tray with some strains that I made myself in the corner, mm -hmm. It's just a little three by three and uh, one gallon cocos that I hand water and they look pristine. They're not showing the same thing, but uh, the same, I don't have meters in those. So I don't know what the dryback is on those. Yeah. But and they're, they're the also a different strain. So it's tough yeah, to, yeah, you know, it's not yeah. apples to apples for a few yeah, different so reasons. It's so hard to tell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where it's tough. I wouldn't try to do anything too drastic, honestly. Maybe up your VDC a tiny bit, but maybe just look at modulating your runoff a little bit and really make sure you're always coming in. You know, if you're feeding at a 6.0, 5.8, 5 5.9 runoff. If your runoff pH starts to go above your feed pH, then we're looking at a pretty bad nutrient imbalance. The plant isn't taking up the salts that we want it to. Yeah. I mean, I, I feed it like 5.65 and I'm seeing like 5.9 in the runoff. So it's, I mean, it's pretty close. It's been going down. It was up higher. And mm. I mean, going going down would what, tell you I'm slightly more acidic, meaning maybe the EC was too high, right? Which is a little... Mm. When your runoff comes out more acidic than your feed, what we're seeing is the plant pulling out those cations or negatively charged ions. So lower pH, 
more positive charge in the solution. And the positive ions aren't really what we want the plant uptaking. So one thing to look at too, is if your pH is coming out a little higher, trying to push a little more runoff and get rid of some of those, but not pushing so much that you bottom out your EC and shock the plant. Cause that's, that's part of why we also always want to re re keep going with, you know, that 10 to 15% runoff of our last shot, just cause we, we, we have to use runoff to maintain that balance a little bit, no matter what plant we have, we can't force every part of our feed EC into it. Yeah. The plant's so only going to take up what it needs to. That's what, I mean, I'm getting like 22 to 25% runoff, but it is 10, it's 10 feeds. It's every 15 minutes over like the lights on plus two hours. And then it's about two mm -hmm. hours and 15 minutes. So it is heavy. I I'm almost certain that I'm getting more, like I'm getting a little runoff earlier than I want to, but mm -hmm. the 20, at the 22 I'm ha or to 25, I'm happy with that. So I've just been letting it, you know, go. And, and I'm sure over the next five days, it's just going to grow into that, you know, but I, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. And the other thing to remember too, dude, is even if you correct that, those leaves that are yellow will stay yellow. Yeah. 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 That's, that's the thing. Like once it, and it sucks if you have a deficiency early on, cause a lot of times the plant's going to outgrow it just fine, especially if you're treating it well, it's just going to, yeah, you walk by at week six and you're like, yeah. I mean, it, it's so, it. <laughs> so, it's so minor, but I'm so OCD that I see yep. what's going on here because I don't see that, you know? So I'm like, what is happening? So that was my only seeing the cocoa ones in the corner look so great. And I'm like, again, different strains, but then seeing them all in the slabs, my first time in the slabs, I'm thinking, well, all I could think is that the 20% was a little too hard on the dry back. But yeah, it was a, it was, it was weird to see that slight mag deficiency. And then also with the, I feed the 3.0 Athena, but mm. my, my water has a base of like 0.29 EC. I don't run RO. And so okay. I, I feed 3.0 base as my 0.3 as my zero. So it's really 2.7. So you don't think I could just be having a little bit low on the mag and calcium from being that 0.3 lower on the EC, right? Have you run a um, water sample analysis on what you're coming in with? Oh, I, I just looked up online the local, you know what I mean, the water registry, okay. and it's all it's basically all calcium that's in, that's in there, you know, mm -hmm. whatever random chemicals. So, I, I, but again, that's kind of beyond my. Yeah, sometimes when you get into water quality issues too, you can have uh, basically neutralizing effects with stuff that's already in the water. Then we mix ion, different ions in and they actually get bound up and fall out of solution, even though you don't see like a huge accumulation. Um, a good example from outside ag would be Roundup. That's something we're all familiar with. If you've got really basic water with like a high carbonate content and you dump Roundup in there, it's only going to be maybe half as effective as it would be in clean water. And then we've got to correct that chemically. And that's just because it's bound like in big reason for that your water has a lot of iron in it glyphosate binds to iron in the soil and that's why you know it doesn't kill everything on the earth when you spray it yeah it makes sense and we we can run into the same kind of uh binding issues with plant salts as well so i mean then overall what do you think i was just ride it out see if it corrects also i'm only at seven i'm only at 700 ppfd early early in flower when normally i'm up more around eight or nine so mm -hmm. they're not getting as much light as they normally would at this time i don't know if I'd, know. I'd ramp that up and ride it out dude and then just yeah. expect to stare yeah. at those leaves and be a little angry with yourself for this yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the worst part right it's like well the good thing is it's only day four so they're, they're gonna be plucked in, in in like 15 days anyway so we won't right. have to look at them anymore yep <laughs> exactly and, and honestly like that's the hardest part with uh cannabis growing is going over from like especially if you've grown either personally or as a hobby or whatever you know back in the day especially with a small setup you're used to like caring so much about each individual plant and now, you know, if you're scaling up, you it's switching yeah. your mindset over to uh, the EIT mindset, economic yeah. injury threshold. Yes. Anything I do has to have a breakover point. If I do nothing, but it costs me more to like, I'll use fungus gnats as a great example. Uh, if you're introducing organics, like we talked about before, and then you're spending a bunch of money on, let's say natural or 22 WP or anything you want to throw at it, you're kind of just chasing your tail on something that only bothers you. Yeah, yeah. That plant sure. doesn't care about those flies flying around. It's yeah, not. I almost don't even count it. Yeah. No, well, they, they don't, you know, they eat the fungus that grows around the roots in soil. We, if we're doing everything right and our soil is set up, we don't have much food for them in there. Yeah. Another thing, uh, you know, 
agreeing with Seth on, you know, ride it out up the light, light schedule or up the light intensity a little bit. Uh, you've already changed the size of your substrate, so you've changed your, your irrigation um, volumes. I, I tried not to change any more variables in there yeah. um, for this run so that you know that, hey, when we've upped this substrate size and nothing else has changed, this is the, the difference in outcome. Um, so that you're not doing a multivariable analysis trying to understand, hey, are these leaves yellow because I didn't give them enough light or is it because yeah. of some other aspect of yeah, that, involved the light with the larger substrate? Well, I, I got behind I got behind a little there. So I, so they just, mm -hmm. eh, over the next couple of days, we'll catch them up. But yeah, normally they'd be at 900 by now. And yeah, it was a couple hundred behind. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all right, well, we'll just write it out. We'll see what happens. I'll let you know in a few weeks. <laughs> Sounds good, dude. All right, thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that question. Um, we're just going to keep moving right along. Uh, Brian, do you want to go ahead and ask yours? Me again. Um, so same same feed rate, 3.0 EC, 5.8 pH. Um, but my mothers, and just recently, have begun to uh, exhibit a higher leachate than the feed. Feed again, 5.8 leachates coming out. With really high runoff volume, like 60, 70, 80%, we're seeing um, 6.3, 6.4 from that 5.8 input. And at a more modest uh, runoff of even 50%, we were seeing 7.7 .7 pH in the leachate. Um, I did hack the mother plants back. They were just getting quite large. And um, we took some clones and, and brought them way back down, like probably a 90% reduction in green matter um, mm -hmm. in their three gallon fabric pots with cocoa 10% early what are your thoughts well right off the bat what i see is you took out that plant's ability to transpire period yeah. when you did that so to be honest it probably didn't need water for like a week sure. maybe that's using a little bit of hyperbole there but um sure. i've noticed that every time especially you know on moms or any kind of big pruning you're losing so much transpirational capacity. And then, you know, the tendency is like, well, we gotta, we gotta give it some to get it growing. Right. Sure. Uh, maybe you need to give it like just a tiny, tiny bump of water and let, let it dry back for quite a while. Because if you keep watering it too much, all you're going to do is like overwater a plant that can't take it sure. and drown it. Um, you said you're in five gallon, right? No, three, three, three. And I Perfect. actually, I should clarify, I have two different sizes of, okay mother plants um the one exhibiting the worst problem is much larger and i i actually didn't cut clones off of it i i reduced it by probably what do you say 50 percent, 50 percent in size um it's still an enormous plant i think for the size it's maybe a four foot by four foot mm -hmm. canopy about six eight inches deep right it's just like a menorah it's very wide nice as you know because i was just going for like a field of cuts to come off of this and we're mm -hmm. gonna Right. Well, we were supposed to clone off of it today, but we had to go with a younger plant because it just doesn't look right. We don't want our clones to be uh, poor. And so that one actually exhibits the worst problem. So I cut it down by about 50%. So I still reduced its transpirational capacity, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, but the smaller plants that I, let's say they were uh, two feet by two feet by two feet, I reduced them to two feet by two feet by one, by one node. Right. Yeah. One, all I have left is one node to go back up. Out. And those had a higher leachate as well, maybe six three, six four, six five. Mm -hmm. So like like unbearably higher, like totally completely out of out of this world, like seven seven was. So mm -hmm. the bigger plants um are, are you know, we're coming out naturally at seven seven and a very low EC, uh one point seven EC. Mm -hmm. And again, really chasing uh when the when it feeds the, the EC rises drastically with that feed, but still never, even with all that runoff and all that, what I assume is pushing through, never mm. achieves the feed EC in the substrate. It never, it never gets very close even. Gotcha. I mean, yeah, when you cut it back that big, basically the plant shuts down for a few days. So that's, you end up with nutrient accumulation. And then also when you do those big cutbacks, it's not going to take up nutrients the same way it has been. So right away, selectively, uh, we've stalled the plant out. It stops growing. Well, immediately it's going to stop uptaking most things, including water at, at a very slow rate for the time being. And then as it's building up, we're going through that whole cycle of building new tissue again. So we're basically starting with a framework and then now it's back to 
just like we were vegging again. Okay, well, it starts out the plant's eating a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, more mass, more feeding. Um, how long have you been keeping your moms though? That's like where I'd lead with that. Sure. Uh, that's actually a great question for how long these ones were alive. What would you think? Six months, maybe six months. Yeah, that's that's really pushing it. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. That's like if I was in like a 10 gallon pot, I'd be like, well, you should go grab the trunk and wiggle it and see if it starts to break off of the roots. Okay, sure. So <laughs> um, actually a follow-up question. What, our new sort of uh, protocol for our mother and stock plants is such that we don't have tissue culture capacity here or anything like mm -hmm. that. So um, if we want to maintain a lot of genetics, but we want larger um, 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 harvest group sizes with sing singular cultivars per harvest group, Mm. You know, we're only going to do two cultivars per week. We harvest weekly. We're in a perpetual mm. state of harvest here. So um, if I have 25 varieties, that's 12 weeks until I need that variety again. And so mm. what we now decided to do is we cut our production clones. We also use some of those clones for preserving the genetic, right? Mm -hmm. it goes through the rooting phase, it comes out of rooting, it goes onto the mother table. Um, mm -hmm into a smaller pot and it grows its way big again. But that would still be a 12-week process, roughly 10 of which would be a rooted plant growing at 500 PPFT. So do you have any recommendations for genetic preservation when you have a long cycle time between the use of those genetics? I mean, the easiest way is to put it in long-term tissue culture and store that mother, obviously, but you have to bat said we don't have that. Um, you know, one good thing to do is just time it. You're pulling those clones off. You're growing that first round of mothers. 12, 12 weeks is enough to preserve that, take some cuts, and then grow a mom crop if you have the room. Mm -hmm. So saying a plant that's, you know, a month and a half old, but we got 10 of them to achieve what we want to off of this one. And then we just throw those away after that first clone harvest. We've kept one to take cuts off to keep keep the cycle going. But basically rotating it out and not you know because that, that's a challenge right your your turnaround time for the next time you're going to grow that strain is about as long as i tell you you should be keeping a mom sure so i i think you're looking re more realistically at fresher mom calling your mom a crop yeah. <laughs> and your harvest is clones and running it in a, in a much shorter turnover time do you have any concerns with any type of genetic drift you always hear about uh, historically people said oh man if you cut off a cut off a cut off a cut you're going to drift away from that initial oh. or original genetic potential? A hundred percent. The longer you keep a plant alive, the more you're inviting somatic mutations. Do yeah. you believe that the cut, the, the stress of the cutting, for instance, in my cycle, I have 12 weeks. Uh, like we said, from the day I would, I would cut a clone mm. until that clone needs to be a productive mom again to cut clones off of. Are you suggesting that I uh, maybe bring it halfway through that? cut another clone, throw that original plant away and start that over. So it's like a prime six week old mother plant and just keep that cycle going. Exactly. You know, when we're talking about genetic drift, really what it is is an accumulation of mutations that can't be repaired through meiosis. So cannabis is an annual plant. It's evolved to basically separate all of its DNA, repair it, go to seed every year. Every year we don't let that plant go to seed. We're accumulating mutations. There are, you know, using tissue culture techniques like embryogenesis that can help that out. But that's just a, it's a factor. It's, it's what goes along with cloning a plant over and over. And, it, and again, to put it to bigger agriculture, we see the same thing in cherries, apples, any of the other many, many plants that are propagated through cuttings. So it, it's there, it's real. If you're growing a strain that's been, you know, 20, 30 generations <laughs> into moms, yeah, we, we expect to see some mutations for sure. But the thing to remember too, with like those somatic mutations is that might be one branch in the room. You know, I've, I've grown some stuff where we were way more generations than I ever knew into that cut. You know, it was kind of one of the, we had a few where you're talking to someone on the phone and they're like, Oh, that name. Pretty sure that was this, that someone else was giving me, you know, 10 years before that. And those ones you see some kind of, you know, you might get a branch that looks like it's a polyploid. We might get one that's got pink hairs on it, one that's half albino. But what's happening there is we have all these mutations that are building up, easier to mutate, but they're, uh, they're not necessarily transferred to the whole plant, if that sure. makes sense. I know, I've, done, you know. I've, seen, 
I worked at a facility for some time that we were getting um, basically like pistolless female flowers. Mm-hmm. Just the calyxes were just kind of bulbous and soft, very, very soft. And it would test at like 4% THC on that branch. <laughs> and, and the rest of it would be relatively normal. Yep. Um, yep. That's an example where you had that one axial meristem that had mutated and then it just took off. Yeah. And, and you'll see the same thing again, apples, cherries, pears, peaches, name it. You start going through an orchard, you'll find some branches that put off, even though they're the same tree. Uh, one odd colored fruit, one branch puts off some huge ones. One puts off ones that taste terrible, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely just a side effect and something that going forward, you know, now that cannabis is legal, uh, we can actually deal with that the same way that's been dealt with in other plants, which is breeding tissue culture. And then also, you know, going forward now that everyone actually has access to things, we don't have to be so married to a particular cultivar. If I could, uh, Terp turtle there was saying he didn't have access to, um, uh, uh, testing. Um, -hmm. can I name drop a company? Is that, that's not like I get paid for or anything, but sure. Yeah, uh, Turp Turtle. If you're listening, uh, I use Waypoint Analytical. They're kind of all over the country. They got in a bunch of different states. It's 55 bucks to test your feed solution and or your leachate or whatever liquid you want. Uh, we do that every other week. So if you want to, once in a while, you could you could get access to that even without uh, a special license or anything. Um, and I don't see any other questions. So if if it's okay, I'd like to actually ask a follow up question to my initial. Question earlier about high N, um, you said I'm not in a danger zone for N, and that's great, except for that now I still don't know the cause of some of my problems. Um, I, in late flower, not on all varieties, but routinely I, I get flowers that are ripening. Uh, you know, they appear to be the, the hairs are turning uh, orange and, and becoming less turgid. And then you'll get, I get the foxtails with white pistols. Um, if I'm not sure what the cause is then. I kind of thought, I thought we were onto something with the high end because uh, I thought maybe that was what was going on. It, but but it could definitely be. That could definitely be part of the problem. Um, with a lot of strains, like I say, after week four, I mean, end of stretch, essentially, I like to put, start pulling that nitrate back. Um, you know, another factor is, and I hate to keep bringing up genetics, but it, they're a mess in the cannabis world right now. <laughs> you know, find me a cut that's got an actual proven lineage and, uh, I mean, if I had money, I'd give it to you, but <laughs> there's, there's not many out there with like verifiable tract lineages. Like, obviously there's great breeders out there. Uh, many people that have been curating lineages that like love talking to them. They've got great things to say. They've kept great track of that. in let's say the 30 years since it came into their possession, but where did it come from that? A bag, a bag from where, <laughs> you know, all this eventually goes back to bag seed. Let's, let's yeah. be real. So well, some, some plants. Hey man, I just changed the name so that the other guy yeah. told you his variety. <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh crap. Yeah, but I've I've grown strains that you know, um, they just didn't perform. Sure. And like I said, sometimes going back to it, like, okay, I have a, a strain. There's a few that I've grown that do foxtail super easy. Okay, well we make the choice. We've got foxtailed out upper nugs. Happens every time we grow this. Do we want to keep it? Is it popular enough? Do we have a market? where that's going to be real hurt by those nugs do we have pre-rolls to throw them in are we focused on jar appeal you know there's, there's a lot of factors in there for sure Absolutely. yeah we have a, a metric for rating as well with all the yeah and you know if if given the choice depending on my situation would i rather uh put a bunch of my top nugs into pre-rolls pearls because they're foxtailed because i can't get my temp under control let's say or would i rather mold something out foxtails every time i'd rather not throw away product so that's definitely something to consider. And uh, yeah, I'll go back to it. I've had some strains that I just loved, adored smoking and growing. And guess what? They do not perform commercially. Yeah, it's not commercially viable. Yeah, or yeah, or my selection was just a you know pack of seeds. I picked the one that was great for me to grow, which happened to be a dwarf. Well, go throw it in the big room and shit, I can only get you know forty grams a square foot off of this one <laughs> in this certain setup. You know. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, guys.
Hmm? Awesome. Thank you, Brian. Oh, man, we had so many great questions this week. Thank you guys for joining us and for sharing your information with our community. We really love to see you guys. Um, yeah, I guess with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Um, thank you guys for joining us today. Um, anyone else who did submit a question who did not include their email address, um, please do include that in the chat. Um, thank you guys for joining us this week. If you have questions about Arroyo, how it can be used to improve your cultivation production process, or any other topic you'd like covered in future office hours sessions, please post it in the chat. You can shoot us an email at support.arroya.metergroup.com, or you can reach out to us on Instagram and send us a DM. We would love to hear from you. We record every session, and we'll be emailing everyone in attendance a link to the video from today's discussion. It'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like and subscribe while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, please feel free to share, your share with your network and spread the word. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you, guys. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.